Mm -hmm. Very well. Okay, so you've already, you've already also alluded a little bit to this earlier in the interview, but uh, what are the features that sign and spoken language share between them? And I mean, do, do they also have the same uh, cognitive basis? Right. Yeah. So this is a super interesting question. And maybe before I answer the question, um, uh, kind of uh, address why it's an interesting question. And it, it's an interesting question because it goes to the basic um, um, uh, question of what is language all about? So is language about this abstract cognitive capacity, a set of abstract rules? Or is it about my ability to move my lips for English or use my manual, use my, my hands in a, in a manual sign language? And the expectation is that if language is really this abstract capacity, then there might be similarities even between languages that use totally different modalities. So not only will I find similarities between English and Chinese, but also between English and American Sign Language, ASL, for instance. Of course, this is not, whereas, you know, conversely, if language is only a, you know, if the driver of the language horse is the body, is my articulation and, and sensory system, then you should not expect much similarity between these two uh, modalities. Now, of course, we would expect some differences because, as I said before, languages are always anchored that are not totally, th there is a reason why the languages are designed the way they are. But it might be nonetheless possible that there are some abstract similarities nonetheless and that's exactly what um, you know my lab is doing um, we're asking what and we're doing that at the level of phonology which is where you would least expect any similarities between a spoken and sign language because phonology is you know some linguists define phonology as the sound patterns of language so how can you have the sound pattern of a sign language right obviously you don't but you can ask is there a pattern of meaningless elements that that are there similar restrictions on how you use meaningless elements in these two modalities and it turns like in terms like they are um so one way to start is take signers asl signers take english speakers and ask what do they each know about their respective languages are there similarities and yes there are similarities for example both have a notion of a syllable um, both have restrictions on how you put syllables together um, so in languages that use reduplication which is the repetition of a linguistic element what you usually find is it's okay to have patterns like malala, it's not okay to have patterns like malama, A-B-A. So malala, A-B-B, that's fine, but malama, that's less fine. And it turns out that sign languages also do the same. Um, and if you, what we've done is uh, bring signers to the lab and probe into the knowledge and um, my student, my graduate student Kathy Anden and uh, myself and my collaborators found that that was really uh, what happened with signers and uh, as well. What we also do that in the lab is something that is even more wild, which is ask the following question. If you're a speaker of a spoken language, obviously, you've never seen a sign language in your life, you don't know anything about sign language. How is, are you going to treat it? Are you going to treat it as a visual pantomime 
or is it going to get your brain language system to tick? Is it going to kind of, are you going to try to use some of the notions that you know about spoken language or indeed about any language and project them to your sign language? And the results that we suggest is that yes, you do. Um, and the way that say English speakers and Hebrew speakers interpret signs in ASL differs in a way that is consistent with the grammar of the spoken language. Um, there's a little bit of technical detail to explain all the differences, all, you know, all, all the concepts, but um, these conclusions, both from looking at signers and looking from what speakers do when they look at signs, suggest to us that what you know about phonology is not about spoken language and it's not about sign language, it's about some very abstract principles. And some of those principles you can even project to a totally new modality. So if you think about it, if you're, the, the principle that you have in phonology is about, is it okay to put ma and la together, or ma, la, la? Obviously, if I'm going to give you a sign that has three identical, you know, A, B, B structure like that, this has no relevance to what you know. But if your rule has something about, for any X uh, element, I can have identical element next to it. So I can have, you know, X, Y, Y, but not X, Y, X, then it doesn't matter for you whether this element is spoken, whether you are, the element is signed, because the rule, all it cares about is the abstract pattern, and you have two identical elements or two different elements, and it doesn't matter then if it's spoken or signed. And the fact that people project the rule in this, in this way suggests to us that maybe these rules really have this really abstract format, even in phonology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th uh, that is really amazing. So uh, just before we get into the differences between spoken and written language, I just wanted to ask you a couple of more things about uh, more about the developmental aspects of language acquisition. So just two quick questions. The first one, uh, are there critical periods for language acquisition, that is, if the child goes through some uh, chronological threshold without language acquisition, then she is no longer able to acquire it. And on the other end, is it also true that uh, if people acquire one language, then and they don't acquire any other language during those critical periods, then the fact that they've acquired that first language renders it more difficult to them to then acquire a second language, perhaps in adulthood or something like that. Yeah, those effects of interference even occur within the critical period, but yeah, but the notion of critical period is clearly a um, well-established notion in biology. It doesn't look like it's the kind of, you know, uh, door that totally closes on you, but it only is a window of opportunity that gradually narrows on us as we grow older. My English accent is a case in point. So, you know, if you don't, I did not acquire English fully until I was older. And, um, and, and when that happens, no matter how many years you're exposed to that, you'll never sound, for most of us, not everybody, but for most of us, it would never sound like a native English speaker. So there is a certain 
window of opportunity early in development in which language as is it prime and and if you acquire language afterwards then you never make it quite um, there is also this uh, uh, notion uh, in, in whereas if you acquire language and that actually is an in, in, interesting uh, finding if you don't acquire language at all and then you try to acquire language late in life for example because you are a deaf adult who was never exposed to a sign language and then you're exposed to a language later in, in life you have tremendous difficulties catching up but it's interesting the work of uh, uh, Rachel Mayberry uh, what she find is that as long as you're exposed to sign language, so if you're exposed to a sign language early on, and then you're trying to say, learn how to read English and you're a deaf signer, that exposure to some language early on produces saving to a new language in a new modality. Um, so, uh, which suggests to us that it's really exposure to language generally as opposed to English or ASL that, that, um, that is, um, the that is, so that obviously, you know, this is not to say that it doesn't matter what language you are exposed to first. It does just say that there are some savings and some transfer even between languages that are very different. And getting a language first within this window of opportunity is absolutely critical. So window of opportunity is very important. This being said, yes, there are some interference also. So it's called, you know, you can think about it in terms of the curse of knowledge. Once you learn something, it can interfere with your ability to, to learn other things. Um, you can see that, you know, even within the first year of life. So um, this is seen more at the realm of phonetic uh, categorization. So um, we humans, when we you know, we hear speech, we tend to put it into buckets, so it's either ba or pa for us, um, and, or if you're, you know, um, uh, a speaker of Japanese, uh, so, sorry, if you're a speaker of English, you'll think about those sounds as la and ra, if you're not exposed to that, uh, you gradually lose this capacity, and that begins to happen uh, within the first year of life, so if you take the Japanese parents and present them with la versus ra, they have difficulties with that. If you take their newborn baby and present them with the same sounds, they are perfectly fine hearing this difference. Gradually, as they become older, and we're talking like within the first year, by the time they reach the first birthday, suddenly they lose uh, a lot of this capacity. Not totally, but, but it, it narrows down. So, uh, which is probably due to the uh, interference um, from the sound, similar sound in Japanese that they are familiar with. Um, the reason why we think it's because of the curse of knowledge about what you already know is, if you're presented with sounds that are very dissimilar to what you know already, so if you're presented with Zulu clicks, for instance, um, people are, are much better at recognizing this type of sounds, probably because there is no uh, similar sounds in the language that would interfere with those sounds. So part of the problem is that what you know already is, is like a magnet. So if for you, uh, la and ra are the same sounds and you're presented with two different sounds and you're trying to kind of, they're all pulled together into the same point, then it's hard for you to 
to uh, keep them apart. So yeah, some of, of uh, what we know interferes, but um, biology and maturation so many plays a role in that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and are there any interesting studies done perhaps on feral children that have also helped us tackle this issue of the critical periods to language acquisition or the necessity to being exposed to language during our development? Yeah, so people are aware of the reports of feral children, but I don't think that's necessarily, and, and you know, and feral children obviously had difficulties catching up on language uh, if they were discovered late in life. Um, I don't think from a scientific perspective, I'm not sure this is the best illustration because obviously those children got a lot of abuse. They were had deprivation on multiple social, emotional levels. So when you get a situation like that, you really can't tell, you know, is the child unable to communicate because they are lacking language or because of other reasons. It's, it becomes a more complicated question, not impossible, but complicated. Um, the cases of Nicaraguan sign language we discussed earlier and home signs are much better examples because like the feral children, those children are deprived of language because just because they're deaf, but they are raised by loving, you know, supporting families. So they have no other deprivations. And then you can pinpoint and say, it is only language that is deprived. There is no other deprivation that you can uh, uh, point to and then ask so what happens to the language capacity in these individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that was what I thought, that perhaps studies done on feral children are really controversial because there are a lot of different factors going around there. And so that was, I, was one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about that as well. So, and now uh, about the difference between spoken and written language. Is it the case that it is much more difficult for us to acquire written language and we have to go through a, pe a period of formal instruction in order to be able to read and write because from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, uh, lang uh, written language only have existed for the last 5,000 years or so. Right. right. Right, and, and it's not just a matter of time, but probably also, also mechanisms. So, uh, you know, there is good reason to suspect that language is a human instinct, to paraphrase Steven Pinker, right? That we have language because we have a specialized capacity that is involved for that. It's, it's shaped by biological evolution. For reading, there is absolutely no reason to suspect that reading is designed by evolution. Um, there are many uh, cultures that have no reading and writing systems and they're doing just fine. So reading is a cultural invention. It's a technology, you know, think about it. If you know a word, right? If you know the word dog, what you learn is how to link this sound dog to a meaning. And once I say dog, this opens you know, a safe in your brain and links the sound to this meaning. When you learn to read, you're learning a new code to open the language safe. And it's a code that was never, the language safe was never to, to designed to work on this combination. The normal combination of the language system is phonology. It's when you hear phonology or when you sign phonology, right? Some kind of meaningless pattern, whether it's spoken or signed, that's what open 
the door to your concept dog in your brain. It was never designed to work on spelling, but somehow we managed to find this additional kind of pathway to get into the, you know, in, into our safe. And it's a totally a natural one. And it's one that children need to absolutely learn how to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yes, but, but I mean, even the written systems that we've developed, they are not completely disconnected from yeah. our phonological systems, correct? Yeah. So the first insight to understand is that language and reading are different and they are not one and the same and language is natural and reading is totally an unnatural system. This being said, you can ask, okay, is reading and writing totally unrelated to language or whether there are similarities? And actually, then you're right to know that there are similarities. And in fact, it's interesting to know that when you look at how reading works, what reading is doing is really mimicking the same process of opening your language door that you do in speaking. What I mean by that is, when you speak, you're using phonology to open the door for dog, right? So if I tell you Caleb, now you know that it's this new sound combination that opens the same door for dog, right? Um, when you read, you are also using sound in order to uh, open the same door. You might think this sounds like a crazy idea, and indeed, most people, when they think about reading, they think about it as a visual process. You know, so it's the same thing as you recognize, um, you know, this, you know, stop sign, traffic sign, you're looking at the visual form, you're associating it with meaning, and that's how you get it. But that's actually not how reading works. I'm not saying that you don't read using your eyes, obviously you do, but that's only the beginning. So what I mean is when you see the word dog, what you're doing is you're getting the letters visually, no question about that. But then what you're doing is what in the States we called decoding phonics. So what you're doing is you're saying, okay, a D is a D and O is an A, a G is an G, what have I got? Hmm, it sounds like dog to me. Let's use the phonology key to open something, find, do I know this word in the lexicon? And it's this phonology, phonological, getting the phonology from scratch, from those letters, that opens the key to the lexicon. How do we know? Because if I get you something that is spelled differently, but sounds like a word, if I give you R-O-Z-E, not a rose, and ask, is that a flower? People, skilled readers would say, kind of tend to say, oh yeah, I think it's a flower, when obviously it's not. Why? Because the sound is using reading. So if I give you something that has the same sound, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a sound trap and, and people fall in the sound trap, which shows that normally when they read, they are relying on, on phonology nonetheless. Um, so, the broader lesson from that, so you might ask, so why reading works this way? Why use the same code to get into the language system? And the answer might be because, precisely because read, because language is an instinct and precisely because reading is not, when human brains come to invent a new technology, they're not that creative. We're not just starting completely anew, but rather we're relying and building on this core knowledge, on what we know already, 
and reusing that in the word in the words of uh, uh, Stan DeHaan, the neuroscientist, um, the brain is a recycler. It's taking those systems that are already there for different purpose and reusing them and repurposing them for a new uh, purpose. So it's for this reason that language relies on phonology and it's for this reason that people with dyslexia, for instance, which is defined as a reading disability, again, it's a misconception. People think that dyslexia is visual letter switching. You can have dyslexia for various reasons, but the most important reason is not letter switching. The most important reason and the most fundamental difficulty that is seen in dyslexia actually has to do with speech processing, not with, uh, and the idea, and you can see this problem with children who are at risk for dyslexia, even infants who are at risk for dyslexia. What I mean by that is dyslexia is a hereditary problem in runs in families. If you take an infant who is born to a family in which there is dyslexia across generations, you look at their speech perception abilities. The person is, the, the baby obviously responds to speech, they can hear fine. But if you look at it very carefully, you see subtle differences. It's not quite normal. So obviously the child will know, if I said dog, they'll know what I mean. But the difference, say, between da and ta, is not exactly the same as in hearing individuals. And because it's those same brain networks that are later supposed to support reading, it's not surprising that reading is becomes really difficult to um, for these children to acquire. So reading is all about language, speech, and phonology. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and so is there any evidence to support the hypothesis that the language we use uh, shapes the way we think and how we perceive the world. And I think that originally this hypothesis was put forth by uh, Sapir and Worf in the Sapir-Worf hypothesis. Yeah, 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 yeah indeed. Um, yes, there is evidence to suggest that. Um, so just to clarify again, to restate the, the question, um, we talk differently, right? Uh, you speak Portuguese and I speak Hebrew, and each language is different. So say in Hebrew, if masculine and feminines are mar marked by different so marked gender or nouns and verbs, the question is, if I talk differently, do I think differently? And is that because of how I speak? So there are really two questions. If we and you and I talk differently, do we think differently? And can we further demonstrate that it's the talking that affects the thinking, or rather the uh, talking, the language that affects the thinking? So in our case, am I going to be oh much more sensitive about to gender differences just because my language marks gender? That would be an example of that. Most people, when they think about that, they think about a really strong deterministic view that if your language does not have gender, then you won't be able to conceive of gender, right? Or something like that. Most of the cases are not like that. Most of the cases show, yeah, if you talk differently, you think slightly differently, but it's slight differences, meaning you might process certain words, certain concepts more faster than other, um, but it's not like you can't think about gender just because you don't mark gender in your language. That would be preposterous, ridiculous. That's not the case. 
This, however, does not mean that the strong warfare hypothesis is, is always wrong. So I want to emphasize it because there is huge, huge literature on the warfare hypothesis, and there are many studies that show that how you talk affect how you perform in various lab tasks. But in most of those cases, it would be really strange to say that you can't conceive of these ideas, but rather, yeah, you can access them more easily than others, but it's not like a huge fundamental difference. Our minds are not incommensurable just because we talk differently. That's not the case. But there are a couple of cases, very limited ones, in which the strong deterministic hypothesis is actually true. And this is really amazing, and this is quite surprising, and that's why I, I wanted to share that with you. Um, so one of those cases is number cognition, how we think about number. Um, but it's, it's always kind of a nuanced story, so I need to tell you a little more about that. So um, how you think about numbers. So um, the question there is, if you have no words for number in your language, if you have no word that means three and another word that means four and exactly three and four, would you be unable to understand the concept of four? It turns out like it looks like it, that's really the case. So the evidence comes from uh, two cases and which are complementary. One case comes from the Piraha, which is a group of hunter-gatherers in Brazil. They have words that mean roughly one and roughly two. It's, in English, it's the concept of a couple. A couple it took me a while to understand this concept that it's not one and it's not two. A couple can be three. It doesn't necessarily have to be really two. And they think about one and two in this way. It's around one and it's around two, but they don't have these precise words for one and two as we do. When Peter Gordon from uh, Columbia went to the Pirha together with Dan Everett uh, and looked at the numeric capacities of the Pirha, they found that the Pirha can deal with numbers to some extent, but the way we, they deal with that is totally different from the way you and I think about that. So if I, the, the Pirha are presented with, say, six objects, and you ask them, how many are there? On average, they'll get it around six. But you and I don't get it around six. We know that it's a six. It's not five. It's not seven. It's a six. They don't have this concept. They don't have this precise concept of six as six. Rather, they rely on other mechanisms that infants have, that animals have. But this capacity for six as such, they do not have, it, apparently. Now, given these results from the Piraha, one would say, okay, but they're hunter-gatherers. That's what Dan Everett, uh, who works with this group closely, originally said, okay, they just don't care about it. It's not like they don't can do that. They don't want to do that. They, the culture, it's the culture that doesn't care about these kind of distinctions, and it's because of the culture that they don't uh, conceive of number. Given the pure harm results, that was a reasonable interpretation, except for it's wrong. It's wrong because... Subsequent research, again, Nicaragua, Nicaragua comes to the rescue. Um, so subsequent research has went to home signers in Nicaragua and looked at their numeric capacities. So I mentioned home signers. These are the situation in which kids grow in a loving, supporting family, but just they don't have sign language around them, and they have a form of communication that 
it has some aspects of language, but is limited. And in that particular case, it's limited in as much as it doesn't have words for specific number words as one and two and three, as we do. Except for these Nicaraguan kids live in a, you know, capitalist societies like we do, and they have all the reason in the world to develop numeric capacities. They want to engage in commerce. They want to make sure they get the right change and so forth. So obviously they have all the pressures to develop language, uh, to develop numeric uh, cognition that is precise, and they don't. And they don't. So given these results and the Pirahar results, the most parsimonious explanation of what's going on here is if your language has no words for number, then you're not getting this precise numeric representation, which we call recursive number. And this is a profound effect of language on thought. There aren't many examples like that. There are a few more, but very, you know, very few examples like that. But in this case, not having a notion of six and seven, it's, it's a really big deal. Um, and it looks like this, is, has, this requires language for that to emerge. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the Piraha are a really interesting tribe and they have been the source of many controversies yeah. and, and I've heard then Everett at some point yeah. saying that they don't think about the future and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, he even said that their language lacks recursiveness. Yeah. That was one of the properties that Noam Chomsky included in his universal grammar. But I mean, I'm not sure to what extent some of his claims are really true or not. The, the questions remain controversial on several levels. So there is the question of whether or not the linguistic analysis of Piraha requires Piraha, requires recursion. That's one question. And more significantly, what does it mean about universal, gram universal grammar? Um, so I think that will get us to a long discussion of, uh, but there, different formulations of universal grammar in which you can account for those facts. And those results, while very interesting and informative, if they're true, and I said this is controversial, if they're true, um, I, I'm not sure that would mean that we are lacking innate universal res restrictions on language. Um, there are other ways to capture those results. Um, but I think this is, you know, I think Dan Everett really is a service to the field to, to that he documented those uh, findings and raised the discussion. I do not agree with his interpretation. Um, Dan Everett and myself had a really kind of heated debate on universal grammar and phonology. I think he is wrong on how he, you know, how he characterizes the language capacity. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a really healthy debate. Okay, so let's not get now into the Piraha, otherwise we would have to do another hour of interview. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so Dr. Berendt, just before we go, uh, could you please give, give us at least a small teaser of what your next book, The Blind Storyteller, will be about? Right, uh, a teaser, I'll try to make it quick. Um, so the book, this is a totally research, new research program. So I'm, I've always been interested in human nature, right? And what is our innate knowledge? Are there such things as innate ideas? Which is really the, in the Platonian notion of are there, are, there, are there certain concepts and principles 
that you're born with is that the whole possibility right um so i always looked at my working language as a way to examine this broader question of innate ideas and with the years that i've been working on that i i began to sense that people think this is a crazy hypothesis and it's a crazy hypothesis not because you know you can say okay there is no evidence to support universal grammar or you have really bad experiments or this is all fair game i have no problem with that i'm a scientist you know we go to the lab and that's how we figure out things but people think it's the hypothesis itself that is 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 kind of crazy it's not the lack of empirical evidence it's the question itself that is strange and i never understood why they think this can't be true so why you know you can have innate biological endowment in the body but why can't you have innate cognitive capacities why that is not possible after all this is all part of the brain so why can't we have you know and the brain is part of the body right so why can't the brain has innate knowledge in it as well um so having been engaged in this discussion for very long i started wondering what's going on here so the first question was do people are really people seriously biased or is that my own perception and if so why are they biased in this way so i started running a research program that really asked people to reason about innate ideas so things like you know objects are cohesive what is your notion of an object we know from new newborns think that objects are cohesive if you see an object that disintegrate they get really surprised do people think this is a possibility or they think it's completely crazy and how does it compare to say a motor trait like you know can infants can make a fist or infants prefer happy faces to angry faces and so we ask people this questions we present them with all kinds of situation ask them to predict if you take an infant and put them on a desert island situation will they develop this capacity will they develop rules of language just as happened in Nicaragua we know that they do and what people say no they won't right and they specifically are saying that so they think that ideas the notion of innate ideas is far less likely and won't say far but significantly less likely and reliably less likely to exist compared to innate emotions innate actions it, it, they really people don't find this uh, uh, possible in in some of the experiments we actually presented them with experiments that have been done so we actually showed them with experiments that my lab has done with newborns right and asked them tell us what will happen will the newborn have this capacity and they say no way <laughs> right when it comes to innate ideas but not so when it comes to to say happy faces uh, preference for happy faces so that kind of made me got me thinking about what's going on why people are biased so first people are really biased is charged this is now a thing it's not and and then the question is why they're biased in this way and my suggestion is um i think that this is not um you know so steven pinker a long time ago in the blank slate said things like well well people might have social reasons to think that innateness is problematic if we are, you and i are different then maybe there is reason for discrimination for injustice and so forth but it's hard to say to see why it would make us biased against ideas which is the most innocent thing to be you know that's who cares about what is an object right um and the theory that i present is that i think it's kind of a our resistance to innate ideas is itself innate 
right? And what I mean by that is something very specific. So what I mean is we know that people are endowed with innate principles of core knowledge, or let's say we don't know, at least we have good reasons to suspect that that might be the case. And in particular, the work of Paul Bloom at TL suggests that people are dualists, that we think about the mind is immaterial, distinct from the material body. There are reasons to think that this is the case. We also know that people, when they think about biological capacities, about living agents, when you ask a child, what makes a brown puppy the same as its brown mother? And they say, it got this little piece of brown thing that it got from the mother. So they think about this innate essence that the you know, the puppy gets from the mother and it's material. And that's critical because if for us, innate, innateness requires a material substance. And if ideas are immaterial, then there is no way in which we can put those two things that, together. There's no way we, we can conceive of the notion of ideas as being innate. So it's kind of a perfect storm. We have, we're endowed with these core knowledge principles that are there to guide how we think about the physical world, the psychological world, the, the you know biological world, they, it, it, we're not innately you know anti-nativist by design. But if you put those three things together, this is likely what you get. And what the book is doing is explore. So we have actually run um, experiments that suggest that, that actually is true. And what the book is doing is first exposing, ex exploring this theory and also exploring its implications because it bears really broad implications to questions about why are we crazy about the brain? Why people think the neuroscience is the so solution to everything? Why people have problems with mental illness? Why, how we think about our true selves? How we think about what happens when we die? It turns out that all those, uh, th that all those cases are, might be shaped by those innate principles of core knowledge, which make that make us blind to ourselves. So we are kind of in this predicament where we are born with these innate principles that make us um, blind to ourselves, and we're building all these stories about how, you know, our mind ticks, but we are not, you know, uh, uh, we are not a, 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 unbiased observers of our own psychological faculties. Okay, very well. And do you already know when the book will be published? As soon as it's written. <laughs> so it will be, it pro it probably be like another year or so, but the papers are, are you know, are getting out there and, um, and I'm, I think it's an interesting conversation to be had. Okay, very well. So, Dr. Berendt, I would like to thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. It was a really fun interview. And so, uh, oh, and by the way, when your book is out, I would really like to ask you again to come on the show to talk about it. I'd be happy to return. Thank you very much. Hello everybody, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel last February and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. 
Otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Per Alga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Jolina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford and Hans Frederick Sunda. Thank you for all.